And hello, everybody. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. I am your host, Jordan Lewis. And joining me in the studio today, I have Senator Jesse Keel. How are you doing today? Good morning, Jordan. Unfortunately, I have a little sniffle. So if you can hear the mask I'm wearing, I just figured your listeners didn't want to listen to you sniffle all week. So... We'll try and keep you healthy. Now, see, if I was sniffling, they'd get my uh, lower, somewhat more dulcet tones that I can have. So I think they're missing out on that part of it. Uh, I don't know. I think we all appreciate your rich, well-modulated tenor. That is fair. Well, I've got a couple of big things to talk with you about today. I think the first one I want to hit, because I know it got quite a bit of attention, is that HB 51 got vetoed by the governor, and that had some provisions in relation to PFAS chemicals. Yeah, yeah, this was a tough one. Last last week was not a great week for me. Um, so uh, my legislation that dealt with no more spills of poisonous PFAS firefighting foams in Alaska, that um, we put that into Representative Stanley Wright's House bill um, dealing with modern refrigerants. Good bill. Everybody loves it. Good for American manufacturing. Good for the environment. Just all around a winner. Um, my bill was running out of time. And we'd addressed every concern that anybody had about it. So I talked to Representative Wright, and he agreed to put that PFAS bill into his. Um, When it got sent to the governor, uh, there started to be some rumblings that maybe the governor uh, might not let it become law. And so I reached out immediately. I asked for a meeting with the governor um, and and didn't hear anything back. Um, Tried to meet with the governor's people. That took almost a week before I could even talk with one of his staff. And they ran through a whole list of issues that either we'd already addressed in the bill or that uh, were things that his departments had asked me to change about the PFAS bill, and I had said yes to the Dunleavy administration. Um, And and, uh, so we worked through every one of those things, and then at the end of the meeting she said, you know, the governor, you just need to know the governor's thinking about maybe a veto. I said, if he is still thinking about this after all these issues, it's very important that he and I talk. And I put in a request a week ago. Um, so we talked about when that might potentially happen, made no commitments. Uh, and, and people from all across Alaska continued to contact the governor's office asking him to sign this bill, which just is about no new spills of this poisonous stuff that gets in the drinking water, gets in the groundwater, and is toxic at incredibly small concentrations. Um, the other thing in that bill, Jordan, was that um, 10, 12 years ago, the state and some nonprofits got together. We sent out some firefighting equipment to tiny rural villages, right? We all know that in Bush, Alaska, it's all volunteer. There's no cash around. You don't, you, there's no fire truck, right? These were carts. They call them code red carts. You could uh, literally pull them behind a four-wheeler, that kind of cart. In addition to regular firefighting equipment, hoses, and water, they had some PFAS foam in case there was an oil and gas fire in the village, right? It's the only thing you'd ever use that for. And my bill said the state's going to take that PFAS, that toxic foam back and properly dispose of it so that those carts, you know, a couple of them have already been uh, run over or destroyed in in building collapses or things, and there have been leaks out there, right, that cost an ungodly fortune to clean up. The villages don't have that money to clean that up, right? So, so that comes back to the state. And everybody who buys home heating oil, you pay a tax into the fund that cleans those up. So for two and a half million bucks, we were going to get all that poison out of rural Alaska, get it properly disposed of. And that's just a drop in the bucket because Alaska Department of Transportation has more than 30,000 gallons of this stuff they got to get rid of from airports where you can land a jet plane. So, so this is a little blip, right, in the state's uh, budget. And it saves a lot of tax money 
because getting that stuff out of the villages costs a whole lot less. Shoot, you'd pay more than $2.5 million for the first spill in a village. And there's more than 130 of those things sitting out there now. So the governor vetoed the bill. Now, he didn't tell me he vetoed the bill. I found out he vetoed the bill three days after he did, he did it because it popped up on the computer system. I got an automated alert that the bill had been vetoed. I don't know why Mike Dunleavy felt like he had to hide from a conversation with me. I don't know why he wasn't proud of what he did and didn't think it was the right thing to do for Alaskans and have you know the common courtesy and decency that every other governor, and I've been around state government a long time, Jordan, had to just say, I'm doing this for this reason and have a conversation, right? We, we all do that. We talk to people we disagree with. Well, I, I can't explain what Mike Dunleavy was thinking or doing. But in the process, he really embarrassed himself, right? He said he's concerned that taking the PFAS poison foam out of villages was going to reduce public safety because you couldn't fight a fire. But he knows, because I told his team, and his departments already knew, that more than 85% of those carts are broken, now, Jordan, there is no difference in firefighting safety between here's something that's broken, you can't fight a fire with it, and it has poison, versus here's something that's broken, you can't fight a fire with it, and the poison's gone. Either way, you can't fight a fire. There's no change in the public safety out there. No. But there were 20 of these things that still work. Not 20%, 20 of them total. And if a village wanted to keep them, the take back was voluntary. They could keep them. And if they, God forbid, had a fire at the tank farm, they could spray it on there because my bill had a temper and exemption for fighting an oil and gas fire on commercial oil and gas facilities, like a village tank farm. Zero change in public safety. But that is the reason in his veto message that he gave. So I don't know what his real reasoning was because he hasn't been willing to talk to me about it. So now we've got to figure out what to do. Do we try and get the votes together for a veto override? Do we try and get him at some point to say what his real concerns are so we can solve the problem and still address whatever his actual issue was. I don't know. But there's one other thing. Since I'm on a rant here, there's one other thing he did that I don't care for, and people ought to know it. He punched down. He threw his own team under the bus. He made the departments that work for him look incompetent. He made them put out statements about this that pretended they'd never talked to me about the bill, pretended they hadn't read the bill. A piece of legislation that had gone through Senate committees and passed the Senate, gone through House committees and was ready for its last hearing, scheduled for its last hearing in the House before it got to the floor. Any department that hasn't read a bill by that point is incompetent. And you know and I know that they'd read that bill because they talked to me dozens of times over the last five years. So I, I can't tell you what the governor's actual motivations were. But they're not what he said. And it raises the question to me where that, that lapse of communication really starts from. Because like you said, if he's not going to willingly talk to you about it, it makes you, like you said, not wonder not only wonder what his reasons for choosing to veto it is, but then choosing to not talk to you or not really engage with anyone else on that, on that front at all. Well, you know, what I can't afford to do, Jordan, is speculate and make stuff up, right? Um, I will try again to talk with this governor um, because there's a lot of work to do other than this bill, right? There's a thousand other issues. But um, it, it's, it's tough, right? He, he, he's made it very tough. Um, what I can't afford to do and what, what the peop- Alaskans I work for can't afford is for me to shut off communication or refuse to talk to him or just make up a reason that I think maybe he did stuff. I will tell you this, though. If, if there's some reason, something he wants me to change or do differently, I can't guess it. I, and I'm not going to hide from my own shadow. I'm going to continue to do this job 
as best I possibly can, continue to focus on the work and the public policy issues. This is not a partisan bill. The House version of this bill had a Republican sponsor. In fact, uh, a fellow who used to work for the Trump administration in a, pub, in a political job in the EPA suggested that we, sign, that we pass this bill actually in a stronger form. Right? This is not an R's and D's kind of thing. This is no more poison in the drinking water kind of thing. Everybody agreed on it until all of a sudden the governor didn't. I'd be happy to fix problems if there are real problems, not boogeymen. I'm there. Um, but, but at some point, he's going to have to open up the door and have a conversation again. He can't, he can't just hide behind a locked, closed door. Gotcha. And I think you hit a good point there where you're like, you know, it's about, you know, toxic water and you want to talk, you know, you want to talk public safety. Having poisoned water is also a public safety problem. If you can't drink the water, then you have a whole whole new host of problems to add onto it. Uh, un- unquestionably. And folks in our district, right, in Gustavus, have poisoned drinking water because PFAS firefighting foam ran off the runway. Nobody was playing with it, right? They were training firefighters in a way that was actually required. We got a huge, expensive problem we're trying to clean up. We can keep people safer by getting this stuff out of the villages and switching over to fluorine-free foam, which works, by the way. The U.S. Navy says it works. And, you know, they don't, they don't mess around with jet fuel fires on aircraft carriers, right? They, that stuff's got to come out, get put out like that. Um, so the, the, the safety options are all there, right? Um, so this is very difficult, um, and, and it's a huge setback, but we're just going to have to get back to work on it and figure out a way to get this enacted uh, one way or another. And that's when it turns back into, you know, how government is. you got to take things in a multi-step process, and if it doesn't work the first time, you try again and again until you make some progress. Uh, we absolutely do. And, and, you know, the other thing, I'll just say it again, right? It's tax dollars that clean up these spills. It is. It, you pay almost a penny a gallon on every gallon of home heating fuel you buy, any refined petroleum products you buy, goes into that fund that does the cleanup, right? For $2.5 million, we can prevent any more spills of this stuff in rural Alaska. We'll spend more than $2.5 million of your direct tax dollars, Jordan, on the first spill. And there's 130-some of these things sitting out there. Gotcha. Well, on that, we do have to move into our break. When we come back, I'll be talking with you about a couple of other things on my list of topics here because I do still have a couple more that I want to hit with you. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. And we're back with more Action Line on KINY. Now, joining me still, I have Senator Jesse Keel. Now, during the first half, we talked a lot about the governor's veto of HB 51, which contained the PFAS ban. But there were a couple other topics I really wanted to hit with you while I had you today. The first one of which is a topic I want to sort of touch base with you about, because we talked about the last time you were in, which was that the Board of Education was considering that ban of transgender girls in high school sports, and they did end up choosing to go through with that. So I wanted to touch base with you about what your thoughts are on that. Well, as, as I said the last time we talked, Jordan, it's really unfortunate. I don't think it was a good decision. Um, and, and the board members acknowledged when they talked that this isn't a problem they're solving. There aren't trans girls out there taking state or, or taking regionals even. Um, and there aren't people being hurt by trans girls participating in sports. It, it simply isn't a real thing. The, the best they could do is, well, we think maybe someday there might be a possible problem, and so we ought to prevent the, the hypothetical. Well, you know, that, that's an interesting notion. I think the, the student member of the Board of Education Early Development did a tremendous job pointing out just how much harm this does. 
to really vulnerable kids, right? Kids who have the highest suicide rates and would be hugely benefited by all the strength that team sports helps kids build, all the resiliency, right? All the mental health benefits that that, that has. The other thing, though, is it, it, there's no constitutional way to apply it. And the board members acknowledged that. As they talked to the press, you know, they said, well, we won't be doing genital checks. That would violate the state's privacy clause. No kidding. We'll just uh, require birth certificates. Well, um, you can change your birth certificate when you transition, right? Your parents can do that if you transition uh, under the age of 18. And there isn't a notation that it was changed. So there is no way to enforce this theoretical ban. All it is... All it functions as, the only purpose it ends up serving is to tell vulnerable kids they're not wanted, they're not welcome, right? Nobody is safer. The thing doesn't work. All it does is send a message to vulnerable kids who are at the highest risk of suicide. That's not a good way for the Board of Education and Early Development to spend its time. I think probably there'll be a lawsuit and they'll lose if anyone ever tries to enforce it. Um, I, I, I'm not a lawyer. I can't predict what the courts are going to do. Um, but... But the Department of Education and Early Development has huge challenges. Alaska school districts are struggling to overcome a lot of things, right, including inadequate funding. They could spend their time so much more productively strengthening schools, supporting teachers, helping classrooms work better, right, building a bright future for Alaskans. Instead of just sending a we don't want you message to vulnerable kids, and, and if anybody, you know, if my voice means anything, we do want you. You're valuable people, right? You have a bright future, and I know things are hard, but there is a path. We can get you there. There's a good life to lead, and you matter, no matter what the Board of Education Early Development says. Gotcha, and I think that was a big one I wanted to hit because to me, kind of reading through some of that, you, you there is certainly that message to take away of being like, we don't want you here. And I know there's other people who are going to say that that was, you know, the right decision for the the, the board to make. I'm not going to make a stance on that, but that's why I want to check back in on it because I know it's going to be, you know, a, a complex and controversial issue for as long as this was going to be, you know, in discussion. And now that it's happened, it's still going to be that way. But that's why I want to check back in with you about it. My, it comes to a general philosophy of government for me too, Jordan, which is government is a powerful tool to solve real problems and take advantage of real opportunities. But for government to spend time on things that aren't real problems, that haven't hurt anybody or cost anybody an opportunity or been unfair yet to anybody, what, what are we doing? The government has other work to do. Gotcha. Speaking of government, I know one topic locally that is of quite some note is I know that the assembly apartments, they're making more progress sure. on that. Sure. Yeah. So just a reminder, that's a building that's diagonal across the street from the Capitol building. And the Juno Community Foundation used private charitable money to buy that. Or those buildings, those, that building was built as apartments back in, I think, the 30s. Um, it's been offices, and, and it was given to the legislature. We are uh, renovating that into apartments that will be available to legislators and to staff. Um, <clears throat> and it, it, right now, it is ahead of schedule and a little bit under budget. So we continue to make progress on that. There's a group of capital movers who don't want it to happen, um, and I understand that because they, they want it to be tough to find housing in Juneau. They especially want special sessions moved, right? They, they have realized that every time since I wore diapers, Jordan, that Alaskans have voted on this, they've either voted not to move the capital or they've voted not to pay the huge cost of moving the capital. So they're trying a little bit-by-bit wriggle strategy, right? Just a thing here, just a thing there, not a whole move all at once. Take it a piece at a time. The next step for them is special sessions, right? 
So think about the summer when tourism is booming, when there are cultural events going on. If we had a special session during celebration when there isn't a hotel room or an Airbnb, shoot, there isn't a spare couch in this town because so many people are here. It's great. But how do you have a special session, right? With 33 apartments that are available, priority to legislators, you can have a special session here in the capital city. Not that I'm angling for extra time, right? We should try and get our work done, but it happens. We need to do that and complete that job to help anchor the capital here in the capital city and, and be a good capital city for the legislators and staffers who travel here from all across the state to do Alaskans business. So I'm really excited. We're going to try and keep that project on time or ahead and on budget or under. Um, and, and we continue to work on that. But it's going well. Gotcha. And that's that's encouraging to hear that that's going well. And I think it is interesting to note that, you know, that you, you know, talk about the capital movers and that they're, you know, that's another thing that kind of, I guess would cause a bit of a chip on their shoulder in the fact that there's more things being done to make sure that that doesn't happen. But of course, I mean, that's going to be another one of those things that gets debated for quite some time. Like you said, it's been going on since even you were super young. It it, it has. And I think the the key thing here is that um, this is one of those things that just makes good sense, right? It makes sense for the state. It makes sense for legislators. It makes sense for the capital city. Uh, Alaska gets a better job done from the legislature and they have better access through gavel to gavel and the legislature's you know high definition cameras in every room when we do our business in the capitol building so every alaskan can see it whether you're in anchorage whether you're in utkiarvik whether you're in dillingham it doesn't matter right if it's in the capitol you take it to some you know alternate site somewhere and people who are there can see it who else can nobody and then you run into that issue everyone always talks about wanting transparency. Well, if you move it off-site and you can't see it. We have built the Capitol Complex for transparency. It works. Gotcha. Now, there is one more big topic I want to hit with you because and it kind of loops back to our general conversation about education. And you and I were talking a bit about it uh, before the show started, which related to you know funding in regards to you know kind of hunter safety type classes. Oh, is this the federal issue? Yes. Yeah. Um, So the background on that is uh, the U.S. Congress, the feds, passed uh, a law. um, It had a lot to do with uh, some firearm safety stuff. There was a provision in there, and my understanding it was kind of a late-breaking deal that that made the the bill go. And, And the intention behind it was you can't use federal money to train teachers and school personnel to carry a firearm. Right. That, that's what the intention was. I think the drafting may have been a little uh, speedy. <laughs> Might have been some other. So right now, the Federal Department of Education, not our state folks, um, have some, some language out there that uh, would interpret that to mean you can't use that federal money to teach hunter safety or to have archery in the schools programs. Um, the outdoor skills program that we have at all our middle schools here in Juneau, that's such an exemplar for the rest of the state. Um, that's not the intent of Congress, right? That's not what they were trying to get after. They were trying to prevent a, a very controversial thing that where there's a question, a genuine question about whether it's more safe or less safe. But outdoor skills and firearm safety and archery in the schools, those only serve to increase safety. And, and you know and I know, especially here in Alaska, right? Every kid who doesn't have a firearm in their own home has a firearm in their friend's home. Right? They need to know what to do and what not to do when they encounter that, if they encounter that. Right, And so we promote safety by teaching kids. No big surprise there. I mean, I, I do it as a volunteer, but there's lots of volunteers. There's lots of folks all over who do it. And, and that's an unreasonable interpretation of what Congress was after. 
And so I was one of the signers. I think there were 16 state legislators who signed a letter to the federal government saying, whoa, hang on a minute. Let's, let's let reason prevail here. I think Congress's intent was pretty clear, even if their language wasn't great. Maybe they need a different lawyer in the drafting office. Um, and, and so I'm hopeful that the, the federal government will see reason on that and apply that, that language the way Congress intended and not, not nick into our outdoor skills program or hunter safety or archery in the schools, school riflery teams, right? Competitive sports. That, that's not what it was about. Gotcha. And I was going to say, I agree with you on that. I mean, I took rivalry in high school, and, you know, that was another outlet for me to learn safety there. But um, then, you know, my grandfather used to hunt all the time. That was another way that I learned a lot of that stuff. And so I think, yeah, you know, maybe a bit more time to cook that one before they sent it out would have been good. But, you know, it's one of those things that just kind of takes a bit of time. Now yeah. we are out of time. So, Senator Q, I'd like to thank you for coming in and chatting with me. I always appreciate getting the chance to talk with you and figuring out what's going on up with the legislature. Thanks, Jordan, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We sure appreciate it. All righty. You've been listening to Action Line on KINY.